Many people are disappointed with Jesus. Uh, recently, I was reading through passages of Mark's gospel with a university student who had no understanding, no background in Christianity. He was curious. At the end of it, having read about Jesus and some of his miracles, his teaching, uh, his death and resurrection, uh, I asked him, well, what do you think of Jesus now? And he just sort of shrugged, said, meh, a bit foolish to get himself killed, wasn't he? And I said, but, <laughs> but haven't you seen how incredible this guy is? He's obviously much more than you or me. He said, well, he, he pulled a few party tricks out of uh, his bag, but then his premature exit. I, I just don't understand why Christians are so obsessed with Jesus. I wasn't quite sure what to do at that point. Others, and I presume this might include many of us, have been impressed with Jesus, maybe over many years now, from when we were children, and we put our trust in him. We might have become a Christian two or 20 or 200 years, no, uh, 50 years ago. But as we've lived out our life of faith, we've expected more of Jesus than what we've experienced. Maybe more help, more power, more health, more peace, more affirmation. And we're now a little confused. You're here, so I presume you're still hanging out with Christianity in some sense or other, but maybe it feels like one of those disappointing birthday presents. You know those presents you get and you, you wouldn't mind if you didn't get it, but you've been given it, so you accept it. Is Jesus become like that to you? He hasn't met your expectations. Well, in Luke 24, we meet two disciples. They've been disciples of Jesus, and you might know the, the first half of this story. We've read the second half. They've seen Jesus crucified, the one that they hoped in. He's buried, and they're now trudging home to Emmaus. And as they walk, a stranger joins them. And we know it's Jesus, because Luke tells us it's Jesus, but they don't know. And this stranger seems ignorant. They seem downcast, and he asks them, well, why? And they say, well, it was all about Jesus. The things of Jesus of Nazareth, verse 19, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the, all the people. How chief priests and, and leaders handed him over to be condemned and to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They had put their hopes into Jesus. They had very high expectations, very well grounded from what they'd seen of Jesus, that he was the one that God had sent, the Messiah who would redeem Israel, who would rescue them from all the perils they were in. But now their hopes have been dashed. And you can almost hear the heaviness of tone, of, of heart. They're, they're confused. They go on to say, different things have happened. We've People have, have been told by angels that he's not dead anymore, but so far, no one has seen this risen Jesus. And almost want to tap them on the shoulder, don't you? Because you know it's Jesus walking with them, say, here he is. But we're told that their eyes are prevented, were kept from recognizing him. Humanly speaking, that's sort of understandable. They weren't expecting Jesus to rise again, and often our expectations do colour what we see, what we're able to recognise. They'd seen him crucified and buried, and they thought that was the end of it. But 
there's more to it than that. There's something strange. As it reports that their eyes were kept from seeing him, it uses what's often called the divine passive. It's not that they closed their eyes, but somebody else was closing their eyes. Presumably God himself was preventing them from recognising that this was Jesus walking along with them. And that prevention allows Jesus, gives Jesus the, the scope and the opportunity to give a background, to explain to them what has happened in ways that will change their understanding. And verses 25 to 27 are really the centre of this story. In verse 25, Jesus chides them, how foolish you are, how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. Luke highlights that Jesus doesn't open their eyes here to his identity. He could have said, cha-cha, it's me, but he doesn't. Instead, he needs to open their eyes to what the Old Testament says about him. Because without that, they won't make sense of his resurrection, of his appearance. Unless they know what God has planned for 2,000 years, unless they've got a proper understanding of the Messiah that God had given his people over the whole Old Testament period, then they won't understand Jesus. Just to see him alive won't make much sense to them. And so Jesus explains, firstly, that the Messiah must suffer, secondly, that the Messiah must enter his glory, and that thirdly, the key to all this are the Old Testament scriptures. And Jesus is implying that if you don't know that, if you don't understand that, you won't make sense of Jesus. In fact, no matter what Jesus does, you'll be disappointed with him and confused by him. Firstly, he says the Messiah must suffer. It's very strong language. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things, that is, crucifixion and death, and then enter his glory? Necessary implies that it's always been God's plan that his Messiah, his rescuer, his king, would suffer. Now, that's not the expectation of these disciples as they walk back towards Emmaus. If God was going to redeem Israel, I presume they, the last thing they thought about how that would happen would be the Messiah being killed. That, that, that's just not the way to do it. If, if God was going to show himself to humans, he would do it in a way that's spectacular, that's, that's wonderful, that's, that just grabs you, doesn't rep, repulse you. If God is going to fix up this mess... How do you expect him to do it? We have our expectations as well. They got Jesus wrong because their expectations were wrong. You may be mystified why Christians have this morbid fascination with the suffering of Christ. Maybe you're turned off by this fixation on death and this grief. We've just been through Easter. And Good Friday often has that sense of 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 weight, of, of darkness, as we consider Christ dying. But Jesus says that should be what you expect. If you've, if you've read your Bibles properly, if you've read your Old Testament, which is two-thirds of, of our Bible, if you've understood it, then you would expect the Messiah to suffer. Now, that assertion seems to mystify the disciples. 
They know their Old Testaments. You probably know many stories from the Old Testament. But they haven't thought, oh, the Messiah must suffer. And that mystifies many people today as well. And we're told that Jesus interpreted to them from the, all the scriptures, all the Old Testament, how it was about himself, including his suffering. Now, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall as they walked along and hear Jesus' explanation. Because as you read the Old Testament, it isn't obvious that the Messiah would suffer. In fact, most of the Jews of Jesus' time had no inkling, no expectation at all that when God sent his Messiah, his king, that the king would be killed. It just didn't make sense for them at all. I wish I knew which passages Jesus went to. What shows you from Moses and the prophets that Jesus, the Messiah, would suffer? Well, let's look at a few, because I don't know whether Jesus went to these, but we'll look at them because they're ones that are used in the New Testament about Jesus and his suffering. One of them was Genesis 22, that story about Abraham being tested by God. Go and sacrifice your son, the, the son of the promise, the son through whom everything that I've promised you, Abraham, relies on his life. Go and kill him. And it's a dramatic test. And it's hard not to read that story as if it's about us, as if it's a story about our testing. What would I do for God if he tested me? And that's not wrong. But I want you to notice something surprising about the story. Because Abraham, you remember, as it was read to us, passed the test. He, He had the knife up ready to strike and kill his son. Unless God had intervened and said, stop, he would have done it. He passed the test brilliantly in a way that I can't imagine myself doing. And you think, well, the story can stop there, can't it? He's passed the test, that's it. But it doesn't stop there. What happens? There's a ram caught in a thicket. And God tells Abraham to take the ram and to kill it in place of his son. And so it's said that the Lord will provide. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And if you're a thoughtful reader, you'd think, why the ram? Completely unnecessary for the test. What is God saying to us? Well, it's a story about substitution, isn't it? The son was about to die, but God provided somebody else to die instead, something else to die instead, a ram. Somehow, a sacrifice, an offering was necessary, and God himself provides it in place of the human. And once you start to see that, you see more, because where is it that this happens? Where is the mountain of the Lord? Well, it's Moriah which is just another name for Jerusalem, the mountain where the city of God, the temple, was built, the city where Jesus was crucified. This story about Abraham's testing tells us that God has something in mind for the future. It's a, it's a preview, it's a prototype, it's the, you know, when you, the little snippet of a movie uh, that you get to see, the trailer. This is the trailer for what happens when Jesus is crucified. And right back in this story, as in almost every story in the Old Testament, God is preparing his people for a Messiah who will suffer, who will die 
in our place, who will take on himself what we deserve. We'll take another Old Testament passage that is about the first Messiah, David, King David. In a sense, King David is the model Messiah, the prototype of what the Messiah will be like. What was David's life like? Did he just rise to be king and everything was honky-dory? Was he crowned like Charles III is going to be soon? And he reigns as king and that's all there is to it. If you know the story of David, he spent years suffering before he was made king. He was chased by King Saul, his predecessor, around the desert. He was, he was a refugee living out in the wild, difficult suffering. Many of our Psalms are written by David and they reflect that suffering. Let me just read to you from Psalm 22. And you'll probably recognize some of these words. This is a Psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? From the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer. By night, but find no rest. Or verse 6, I am a worm and not a human, scorned by others, despised by the people. All who see me mock at me. They make mouths at me and they shake their heads. Commit your cause to the Lord, let him deliver. Let him rescue the one in whom he delights. Verse 16, for the dogs are all around me, a company of evildoers encircles me. My hands and feet are shriveled. I can count all my bones, they stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among themselves. And for my clothing, they cast lots. David's life, the life of the the prototype Messiah, was a life of suffering for many years before glory. Or we could go to the prophets. And a passage that you're probably familiar with is Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. I'll just read a couple of verses from that. He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his uh, bruises we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. If they'd read their Old Testaments clearly, understanding that that God was pointing forward to his Messiah, then they would have known that the Messiah would suffer. The rabbis of Jesus' day were confused by Isaiah 53. Many Jews today are still confused by it. But Jesus says, it's all about me. It's by his death that he redeems God's people. He dies in our place, taking the punishment that we deserve. See, Jesus' death doesn't uh, mean that he's not the Messiah. If you've read the Old Testament clearly, you'll know that Jesus' death means he is the Messiah. He was necessary. It was essential to his mission. He's not a glorying in suffering, but it is a joy in what that suffering has achieved for us. Is it your expectation that the Messiah, the one who will bring life to you, does it by dying? For many people, I think it's not. Second, Jesus says, then the Messiah must enter his glory. And that makes a bit more sense for us because that's, that's what kings do, isn't it? They enter their glory. They get exalted to a position of being reigning king. On the 6th of May, Charles III, God willing, will be made king. He'll be crowned. He's sort of been king already, I know, but 
then he will formally, officially be king. And we expect kings or queens, royalty, to ascend to the throne. And Jesus says, yes, that's what you should expect of me as well. But the way he ascends to the throne is probably, again, not what the disciples expected. In 2 Samuel 7, God had promised to King David that his descendants would be on his throne forever. God would establish his house, his dynasty. And forever is a long time, isn't it? A very, very long time. And I presume people puzzled, how is God going to fulfill that promise to have a descendant of David on the throne forever? The most obvious way that God would do it is just an endless succession. King after king after king after king. That's an unbroken line forever. But there's another option. The other option is it's ruled over by a king who never dies, or at least never dies again because they've been resurrected. And so Jesus radically changes what they think the Messiah will be like and what he'll achieve. The disciples probably think about this dynasty being restarted when the Messiah comes and a physical military kingdom that he would bring, redeemed from Roman oppression. But if he comes to his throne by resurrection to be king forever, then it's not the Romans that he's defeating. It's death itself, a much bigger more scary enemy than Rome. And critical to Jesus' little lesson here is that he uses Old Testament scripture to point to himself. We read the Old Testament, I I hope you do, and it's full of incredible stories, drama and passion and and characters and, and people. And the way most people, I think, read the Old Testament is they read it as morality plays, as stories about me and how I should behave. Now, there is some truth in that. But notice what Jesus says about the Old Testament. He's beginning with Moses and all the prophets. He interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. What's he saying? He's saying that the Old Testament scriptures are actually all about him. They all point forward to him. If you read them and that's not how you read them, then you're not reading the way Jesus read them, the way God intended them to be read. If you stop and think for a minute, what would you make of the crucifixion of Jesus if you didn't have the Old Testament? You'd probably just think it's a pretty sad case of justice gone wrong and somebody being martyred for a foolish cause. What else would you make of it? Thousands of people were crucified by the Romans. Is this special in any way? It's only through the lens of the Old Testament, God's uh, education of Israel and of us over 2,000 years, to understand things like you can substitute a ram for a person. If it dies, the person lives. All those sorts of ideas and concepts, a whole worldview of what sin is, what, what it does to our relationship with God what God does to provide the solution in the death of the Messiah. If you didn't know that, then you could never make sense of Jesus' death. If you didn't know that God had promised a Messiah who would reign forever, defeating all our enemies to give us life with a capital L, then you wouldn't know what to make of rumours of resurrection. It's only when we have all that background of the Old Testament, it's only when we read it, Understanding that God was preparing us for Jesus, 
so that we understand him, that we can understand the Messiah. It was necessary for him to suffer and after that to enter his glory. Notice too that Jesus, what Jesus says can only hold if what Scripture says is true. He says that if it's in Scripture, it must happen. It's necessary for it to happen. Many today, sadly, think they know better than Scriptures, which is really saying they know better than Jesus. Because Jesus says all Scripture is true. Can I humbly suggest that Jesus knows better than us, doesn't he? If he has confidence in the scriptures as God's word, as God's preparation, as the way, the true way we understand him, then who are we to say that he's wrong? They were prevented from recognizing Jesus so that they could hear Jesus' little explanation, his interpretation so they could understand Jesus properly before they recognised Jesus. And then, weirdly, suddenly they do recognise him. They stop at their home, and they, have, they start a meal, and I'm not quite sure why, but Jesus ends up sort of being the host. He says grace at the meal and breaks the bread, which was a normal part of Jewish meals of that day. And as he broke the bread, they recognised him. Now, it could be that Maybe they saw the, 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 the nail uh, holes in his hand. I'm not sure, but they recognised him. It was the same Jesus that they knew had died and was buried. He was now in front of them, having a meal with them. And then, weirdly, again, he disappears. The resurrection is a real physical body. He's breaking bread with them. And yet it's not simply a resuscitated body. It's a, it's a different sort of body. It's a body made for immortality, for eternity recognisably Jesus, yet not exactly the same as the, the, the previous Jesus. And it seems it was necessary for God to open their eyes. He closed the eyes, now he opens their eyes. They were blinded by God till the framework to understand Jesus is in place, till their expectations have been rearranged and put back into, into the right shape. And then their, their eyes are open to recognise this is Jesus. Jesus is saying it's necessary to understand who the Messiah is and, and what God sent him to do in order to recognize Jesus to truly be the Messiah. So if they didn't know that, if they didn't have the explanation, imagine that Jesus walks up beside them and, oh, it's Jesus. I'm sure in their shock and excitement and they would have just been overwhelmed with joy. And reckoning with his suffering and death would almost fly out the window. They don't need to do that anymore if Jesus just was immediately recognised. But they're prevented, I presume, till they understand that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer. And again, I think there are Christians today who are very excited by the resurrection of Jesus, but have almost no place for his death. Uh, Resurrection Sunday is a, is a wonderful day, isn't it? It's, it's sort of a day full of light and, and, and bright hope. It, it shows God's power. And we love the reality that God is powerful and he works. He defeated death itself. But often people have little place for Jesus' death. They don't think it was necessary for him to die, except as the sort of precursor for his resurrection. 
I remember chatting to my own bishop when I was uh, uh, serving in a parish of Wildcatcham. And we had a little conversation about Holy Communion. And for his point of view, Holy Communion was all about the resurrection of Jesus. I showed him a couple of passages where it's clear it's actually about the death of Jesus primarily. We proclaim his death till he comes again in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. But I think for this bishop, he, the death of Jesus was almost something to ignore, to put on the back burner. It had just been overwhelmed by resurrection. I think it was, be, well, for many people, it's because we've stopped believing in the seriousness of sin and evil, that there is a real penalty for sin. We want to eliminate anything negative, anything that's to do with suffering and pain from our life and from our thoughts. And so resurrection, yeah, I'll go for that. But in our mind, it's not necessary that the Messiah should suffer. But Jesus says it is necessary, it was necessary, it's central that the Messiah should suffer and then to enter his glory by resurrection. So this morning, we're invited to consider Christ, the real Christ, the Messiah, who on that weekend, that changed everything. His death on the Friday, his resurrection on the Sunday. The world has changed. He's died for our sins to reconcile us to our maker and creator. He's risen to be our Lord, the one who reigns over all, including the death and Satan and sin that rule over us. He is God's Messiah. But just like the disciples, we need God to open our eyes to this, don't we? It's not just a, a, an intellectual thing. It's a spiritual thing. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that the God of this world has blinded our eyes to the reality of Jesus. But God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. To become a Christian is, it takes God opening our eyes, removing the blindness and the shudders that stop us recognising Jesus, the one crucified and resurrected to be God's Messiah. So can I ask you, what are your expectations of the Messiah? That he would die and rise? Because if they're, they're not your expectations of what God will do to fix this mess, then it's not God's Messiah that you're trusting in. It's something else. God spent 2,000 years prepping his people to understand that when his Messiah came, he would be crucified and rise again. But I think our temptation is sometimes to tell God how he should do it. God, don't like that way. Please do it my way. I'd much prefer a a Messiah who just came and did party tricks and, and impressed us with all his power not a Messiah who's died and then rose again. It's tempting to do that. It's sort of understandable because my diagnosis of what's wrong with the world and what it needs and what will fix my life and your life is often different to God's diagnosis. Can I encourage you to listen to Jesus? It was necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and then to enter his glory. Or maybe in your disappointments. We all have some about Jesus. Because we do expect that Jesus will give us this and this. And when he doesn't, we're not quite sure what to do. We're confused. 
and disappointed. But if his mission was to suffer and then enter his glory, to die and rise again, if that was his mission, then we can't be disappointed, can we? Because that's what he did. That's what happened. And gloriously, that is what happened. Because that's what we really need. And that's what we continue to need. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came. That you were determined to be the Messiah that your Father had planned for generations. A Messiah who suffered and rose again. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for rising again to be our Lord and Saviour. Amen.